Welcome back to the Housing Journal podcast. We're a collaboration between the three best housing journals, Housing Studies, Housing Theory and Society, and the International Journal of Housing Policy. I'm Emma Power, editor of the International Journal of Housing Policy. And we've got a great lineup for you this time. First up, Helena Bowman chats with Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. They take us into the world of housing renovations and tenant rights in Sweden, exploring the role of tenant voice and the limits of tenant influence over renovations in this context. We then drop into a conversation between Andreas Schaber, Ivan Churok and Beth Watts from Housing Studies. This is a fascinating story about institutional failures in social housing delivery in South Africa, and it has some important international lessons. We finish up hearing from Nicole Gurren, who recently sat down with my co-editor, Dallas Rogers, from the International Journal of Housing Policy to reflect on the nature of informal housing practices. First up, Julie Lawson and Helena Bowman. Have you ever lived in an apartment that the landlord wants to renovate? In some countries, such as Denmark and the Netherlands, social landlords are now renovating their homes to make them more energy efficient, bring them up to modern standard, and perhaps also improve the neighbourhood. Some renovation schemes, though, are designed to shift tenants out permanently, upgrade and sell their dwellings for future capital gains. One thing these processes both share is that renovation often leads to a lot of disruption for sitting tenants, not only in noise and dust, but also in finding temporary alternative accommodation. Don't forget about their relocation costs as well, and also the prospect of rent increases in the future. Swedish researchers Boo Bengston and Helena Bonham consider that renovations are critical junctures in tenant-landlord housing relations they have published a very novel article entitled Tenant Voice, As Strong As It Gets, Exit, Voice and Loyalty in Housing Renovation, which is featured in the latest issue of Housing Theory and Society. It applies a very well-established and influential theoretical framework. Originally developed by a political scientist named Albert Hirschman in his book Exit, Voice and Loyalty, which was written during the 1970s. This work has since been applied to world politics, the organisation of labour, and more recently also housing systems. I have the good pleasure of welcoming Helena Bonham. She's with me now, all the way from Malmo in Sweden. Helena, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for your recent article with Boo Bengston. It'll be in volume 38, number three, for listeners out there who are counting and searching. This new article is actually open access, so people can download it. So can I begin, Helena, by asking you to explain how renovation efforts uh, affect tenant-landlord relations and in what types of ways? Well, you can consider renovations type of a contract renegotiation before you have a status quo, so you have an ongoing contract. But with the renovation, you are changing the object of the renovation or of the contract. And 
The problem with this compared to other contract renegotiations is that people are in a position where it's often hard to move. So it's it's not, you know, there are high transaction costs. And one impact of the of this is more, as I said, as the objective. So it changes your apartment, it changes the house, the exterior, and often the price. And that's what we often discuss. But it's often also a relatively lengthy process. It takes time to renovate. Uh, you go into a person's house, which is very personal. You may have to arrange with relocation for certain tenants if it's lengthy. So it's very different with a housing renovation from an office renovation. And that's finding replacement housing is also often very, very difficult, increasingly difficult in the Swedish context. Uh, so the long process is one thing that we, I think we often forget. But we also, when it comes to the contract, what we also saw in this study was that in the early days of this renovation, uh, the previous owner had informal agreements with the tenants. Uh, and that turned out to be a problem because they're not written down, they're not codified. So with a new owner who was more perhaps professional and more going by the books, this also became uh, something that changed very drastically. So you and Boo use a particular theoretical framework, a model by Albert Hirschman. Can you explain this model? Many uh, of the listeners may not have heard about it and why you think it was uh, useful. Well, the the Hirschman model is basically a model to analyze how people act when they're not content with a situation or with a purchase. And we often refer to it as the exit voice and loyalty framework, because those are kind of the three fundamental pillars in the model. And what Hirschman does is that he combines in economics, the typical way that we think of people will react when they're not satisfied is through exit. If you don't like a good, you stop purchasing it. Now, in political science, you often focus more on the voice strategy. So people use their voice to try and change the status of, of something. And so you can vote or you can try to affect through media or some different ways. And so you use your voice mechanisms. And Hirschman combined these two different ways to act into one framework and what kind of interrelates, they're interrelated concepts. So they're not mutually excluding. You can use voice first and exit later, for example. And what interrelates them is this concept of loyalty. So if you're loyal to something, so you have a strong feeling for, for your house in this case, for example, but it can also be your hairdresser or your workplace. Uh, that will also induce you to use your voice in the first case and try to affect the outcome first and perhaps prolong the possible outcome of exit. So it's it's a framework that we thought nicely can put economic theory and political theory and more kind of social aspects into one way of explaining a fairly complex process. Mm. It's very, very interesting because it, it seems this theory has been applied to so many different things, from world politics to the organisation of labour to housing systems in general and housing conditions. And now you're doing this in a very novel and, and very empirical way too, from the concrete, looking at this long-term renovation process in Sweden. So 
every country regulates renovation processes affecting tenants and landlords in different ways. Can you tell us perhaps something about the legal framework affecting renovation in Sweden, in rental housing there? I I think basically in the end, the, the fundamental is that it is the landlord who decides whether to renovate and the scope of the renovation. There is a possibility for tenants to take it to court and, and object to the renovations, but it's extremely rare that the court rules uh, in line with the tenants and almost always go by the landlord's side. So basically the property right here, the, the owner of the property has fairly strong rights. And in that way, I, I would say renovation is not that different from many other countries. The property right is, is a very strong guiding line here. Uh, one thing that is a bit different in Sweden is the rent setting process, because we have a process, it's, it's a negotiated rent that you have in rental apartments, and it's locally applied, so it differs at how rent structures look in Stockholm from Malmö, for example. And in this case, this opened up for some possibility for the tenants to also affect the rent setting. And that might make it a little bit different than other mm. countries, I think. Yeah, we always think of uh, of Sweden of ha- as having very strong tenant organisations, agreements over standards and so on. And, and in your study reveals actually how even the most articulate, well-organised and educated tenants uh, with a long history still didn't really manage to get what they wanted in the end, did they? No, and that's why we thought this case was so interesting, because it was often when you look at, at these type of cases, you can we tend to think of rental housing as something associated with lower income households. And this was not the case here. This was well-educated people. We had lawyers, we had journalists, we had people who were quite used to rent processes and so on. So that's why we thought it was so interesting, because we figured it's hard to imagine a case where you would have more opportunities to mm. affect yeah. uh, the process. So we use it in that sense as a bit of a test bed, if you will. Indeed. And one could contrast it very easily with the position of tenants, um, their voice and and uh, and their choices in, in remaining in places like Denmark, where um you know, tenant democracy gives empowers them to have quite a lot of say over the, the the financing and the choice to renovate in the beginning. So, it it would make a really interesting contrast. Perhaps you could end by telling us um, what you think should be the future of this field or this direction of research. Where should where would you like to see it go? That's a quite a different difficult question. Um, I mean, I think what I like about the framework that we're using, I would like to see more studies because I think it's a good way of, as I said, kind of combining those different the different fields. And one thing I would like is perhaps to see more of interdisciplinary research in that sense. I think I've, you can find quite a lot of studies that are more economic to their natures and you have more that are more sociological to their nature, perhaps. And I would like to see more of that being combined because I think it's in order to understand it and in order to improve the systems I think we need to have good understanding for 
various theoretical frameworks and various disciplines. So that's that's what I would like. Mm. Um, for the specific questions that we have too with the Exit Voice, we have also, we talked about also doing more of a quantitative study that would be interesting to see what's like the exit patterns from here, but it's quite hard to come about data. Mm. And we didn't do that. And with such a lengthy process as we had, it's also difficult to mm. say. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing your ideas from your article with Boo Bengston, Helena. And I understand there was quite a few, quite a team working on this too and providing empirical research uh, who were acknowledged in the article. And listeners can download this uh, piece, which is available open access uh, from Housing Theory and Society. It's on the latest issue um, on this year's volume. So uh, thanks. Thanks very much for your time, Helena. Thank you very much for having me. That was Helena Bowman in conversation with Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. And the journal's Twitter handle is at Housing Theory. Next, we hear from Beth Watts from Housing Studies. It's Dr. Beth Watts here from the international journal Housing Studies. And in this episode, we'll be speaking to Andreas Schaber and Ivan Turok about their paper, The Role of Institutions in Social Housing Provision, Salutary Lessons from the South. It's a brilliant read and it's free to view for a limited period. So go and have a look at the details. So a very warm welcome to Andreas Schaber and Ivan Turok, both from the Human Sciences Research Council and the University of the Free State in South Africa. Thanks for joining us from Cape Town. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. So we're here to discuss your recent housing studies paper, which tells the frankly extraordinary story of failure to introduce effective social housing provision in South Africa during the 1990s and 2000s. And I wanted to just whet the audience's appetite by sharing a few sort of startling elements from the paper. So you guys suggest that the social housing subsidy program you focus on had a target of delivering 50,000 properties between 1998 and 2000, but that in fact, less than 20,000 were delivered in the decade to 2006. You explained that some of the social housing schemes set up during this period experienced rates of non-payment of rent by tenants of up to 85%. And you explained how politicians work to undermine social housing schemes, including by encouraging constituents not to pay rent, and how criminal gangs in some cases subverted projects using threats to board members. It's quite a read. What your paper offers is a careful and comprehensive institutional analysis of this policy and implementation failure. So can you tell us why you thought this was an important story to tell? Thanks very much, Beth. Um, this is an important story to tell, partly because it's not very well known in South Africa. There was no history of social housing in the country at the turn of apartheid, unlike in many other countries. And so this became a really important initiative, important for citizens, important for communities, and important for cities, because it's the only housing program in South Africa that's explicitly designed to transform our divided apartheid cities. It does so by enabling low-income groups to live in better quality accommodation in places that they couldn't otherwise afford. 
The stock is rental. It gives people flexibility, people moving to the city or moving about within the city. So it doesn't tie up their resources in fixed assets. And it's managed stock. So the buildings are well-maintained and the organizations that run these social housing projects provide supplementary services such as childcare to enable women, women to go out to work. So it helps to integrate, or so it was supposed to do, to help integrate our segregated cities and support social mobility. But, and this is the big but, the policy went awry soon after it was introduced because firstly of poor oversight and secondly because of weak management. And Andreas is going to explain some of that in a bit more detail. Thanks, Ivan. So you take an institutional approach to your analysis, which you've touched on there. But Andreas, tell us a bit more about that and explain which institutions matter so profoundly in this story and why. Sure. So simply speaking, by institutions, we mean the rules of the game in which actors operate. And importantly, they include the formal codified laws and policies, as well as the informal norms, values and codes of conduct that shape people's behavior. So by employing this institutional lens in our paper, we not only demonstrate the inadequacy of the formal policy framework, which was really underdeveloped and lacked sufficient implementation and monitoring capacity, but we also highlight the significant role of informal institutions and how they allowed for non-payment of rent, mismanagement of public resources, criminal activities, and political interference to take place in projects and become almost normalized in the sector. And obviously, these two sides are related to each other. So the lack of strong formal institutions and sector capacity enabled the emergence and perhaps even the dominance of informal practices in many of the projects that were developed by inexperienced third sector organizations. So in a sense, we saw an informalization of the social housing sector which created benefits to some, including corrupt officials, the project managers and non-paying tenants who didn't get evicted, but it also resulted in reluctance among private sector finance to invest in social housing associations, which partly explains the low uptake of the program. So a last point that I want to make here is the importance of the historical context and how the prevailing socioeconomic conditions, including the widespread poverty, unemployment and inequality, as well as the political demands for home ownership shaped the institutions and also drove some of the informal practices at the time. Thank you very much, Andreas. I, I can't recommend uh, to listeners enough that they, they read the details of this story in, in the paper, which we've made free to view for a limited period. So clearly, for all of the reasons you have both explained, this story matters profoundly in the South African context. And in your paper, you, you happily uh, note that efforts to improve social housing delivery and management are ongoing and some of the institutional issues you identify are being addressed. But I wonder, to close, uh, what do you think the implications of your paper are for housing scholars and indeed housing policymakers internationally? So in terms of the housing scholars, I think our paper really encourages them to pay close attention to both the formal and informal institutions when they study housing in different places and contexts. So I believe that you know, employing such an institutional lens offers great potential for in-depth and comparative research. And also it allows us to understand better why housing policies emerge in particular ways 
and what they produce on the ground, which is often quite different from initial government objectives and plans, as our study showed. So related to this, I think there is a large body of literature on institutions developed within other disciplines that housing scholars can draw on to enrich their analysis. And of course, the, the opposite is true as well. So housing research can make important contributions to the literature on institutions, governance and development in different places of the world. And with regard to policymakers, I'm sure Ivan is happy to answer this for you. Go ahead, Ivan. So social housing is really important in terms of policy for a country like South Africa. Indeed, I would say for all countries with uh, divided cities. It's important to help integrate different communities, and it's vitally important for social mobility. But it needs three things. Firstly, it needs capable organizations to develop and manage the stock in a way that's sustainable. It needs, secondly, support from local government and local politicians to provide subsidized, well-located land and to encourage tenants to pay their rent and to follow the rules. In a context, in a very unstable society, it's very easy for uh, uh, opportunists to take advantage of the situation and to undermine these important institutions. And finally, it requires national government to provide adequate funding, of course, but also to provide oversight to ensure that organizations are following the rules to avoid abuse in order to ensure a stable and well-managed sector I think that's critically important. Thanks, Ivan. Thanks for pulling out of that really detailed uh, particular case study, those transferable lessons, which I, I know will be of great interest to our listeners and readers. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both today about this, this incredible um, scholarship. So thank you very much for joining us and take care. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was Beth Watts from Housing Studies. You can check out their Twitter handle at Housing Journal. And up last today is Dallas Rogers. He sits down with Nicole Gurren to talk about a recent special issue on informal housing practices that was published in Volume 21, Issue 2 of the International Journal of Housing Policy. The introduction to this special issue is free to view. All right, uh, Nicole, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dallas. So informal urbanism and informal housing is an idea that we're, well, I'm most familiar with coming out of the global south. Um, And most other people will be probably familiar with it coming out of the global south as well. But you're dealing with the idea of informal housing from the global north perspective. How does it operate in somewhere like Australia, that idea? Yeah, that's very interesting, Dallas. And it's certainly something that we tried to draw out. I mean, that was one of the whole ideas behind the special issue in the um, journal. Look, what we're trying to do actually is not, not specifically only talk about informal housing in Global North context, but actually learn from Global South scholars who tell us that informality and informal urbanism is really a mode of urbanisation and, in fact, this idea that there's a sharp dichotomy between, you know, formal cities 
and formal housing and the informal that actually that sense of a dichotomy is false. But perhaps to understand how it emerges in the global north context that we're dealing with, like Australia and in the special issue, there's you know, European context, there's certainly the UK and the United States as well, we kind of need a bit of a working definition. And the working definition of the informality that we use is practices, housing practices that operate beyond or might even violate state regulations. And they tend to offer residents of informal housing less protection from those regulations as well. So in the case of urban development or housing, the regulations that we're talking about are things like planning rules, building you know, codes, maybe property laws on ownership or about um, rental practices as well, rental standards, and certainly rental tenure. So informal housing tends to either operate, you know, in a grey area within those regulations or might even um, violate them. But what we learn from Global South scholars is actually that this informality is happening within a context that is set by the state because the state is defining those regulations and it's choosing when and how to enforce them as well. Also within a context often of having neglected to provide adequately for lowest income residents. And there, in the context of the global of global North countries, which are you know, so wealthy that in Australia, our housing asset this week has risen to you know, more than $9 trillion, it seems absolutely extraordinary that we can't afford in global North context like Australia and in you know, a city like Sydney, we can't afford to make sure that the lowest income earners are able to access decent and affordable housing or we're not able to provide them with income support to do that either. And so this, that our Global South scholars like Ananya Roy point out that informality is happening really as a decision of the state to fix regulations that are selectively enforced, but also to allow conditions to fester that force the lowest income earners into needing to accept informal and unregulated working conditions often but also housing conditions which is what we are focusing on. Mm. So that's very interesting. Can you tell me the different types of informal housing? Yeah I mean we use in the special issue the term informal housing practices because there's really such a spectrum of activities that could fall within that umbrella of informality. So in the global north context we can distinguish between informal rental practices so things like share housing, households doubling up, people renting out rooms or even beds in rooms and then a distinction between informal housing stock, the dwellings themselves, and they could be things like granny flats, garage conversions, subdivided homes or apartments, using non-residential buildings like you know, sheds or like factories or offices for housing without undertaking the necessary work to get that accommodation up to scratch. So, you know, without following the regulatory requirements, if you like. And there's a lot of debate about whether informal housing is always illegal. And I'd argue that it's not. But as I'm 
was saying before, there's typically less protection under the law for people living in informal accommodation and typically less uh, tenure security um, as well. Mm. So I guess a two-part question, is informal housing a problem? And if it is a problem in somewhere like Sydney, what do we do about it? That's the million-dollar question. (laughs) And as a researcher, that's (laughs) why I'm so invested actually in studying this. Look, I see informal housing as more of a symptom of a problem. It's the problem of deeply unfair housing systems where property wealth has become so uneven that in countries like Australia, you know, we've we've got, you know, the most valuable property in the world, but we're not able to accommodate people on very low incomes. So look, it's a reflection of a lack of inform of affordable rental supply. And in Australia's context, that's a reflection of 40 years of policy failure. And I suspect that's the same in other countries as well. But that said, uh, some types of, you know, certainly people are seeking informal housing because they're not able to access an alternative. And so the response is not necessarily to go in with heavy boots and enforce the regulations, but the response is actually to do the structural work to provide, you know, adequate supply of social and affordable housing to provide adequate income support, and then to provide rental protections in the private rental sector and start to enforce the standards of accommodation. And at that point, I think we can look at enforcing regulations as part of the solution. That doesn't necessarily mean that we won't see or we won't welcome informal housing solutions as well as part of that mix. But when informal housing is primarily being produced as a response to unmet housing need and then a a response that landlords, for instance, and, and, you know, wealthier property owners are able to incorporate into their you know, wealth accumulation strategy. You know, when that when it's that type of informality that's occurring, it, I, I do see that as a problem. But there's certainly some housing approaches that we think of as informal, like land share schemes, for instance, or deliberative resident-led development models, approaches that seek to decommodify and demarketize housing and we think of those as informal and they may certainly um, you know be part of the wider solution too excellent well everybody needs to check out the special issue and your introduction to it thanks for joining us today thanks very much dallas that was dallas rogers and our twitter handle is at IJHP Editors. Well, it's been a fascinating set of interviews today and we look forward to chatting with you again next time.